This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Talking Heads' Stop Making Sense has been called the greatest concert film of all time. Directed by Jonathan Demme, the iconic 1984 film takes the audience on stage with the band and captures them at the height of their power. And now, in time for its upcoming 40th anniversary, a fully restored version of Stop Making Sense is back in theaters. It features propulsive performances with the band's early hits like Sickle Killer and Take Me to the River, along with deeper, weirder, and funkier cuts as well. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Stop Making Sense on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Joining us today is one of the co-hosts of NPR Music's alt-Latino, Felix Contreras. Welcome back, Felix. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me, man, for such a fun subject. Yeah. I know. It's so great to have you, especially for this. The film Stop Making Sense is a time capsule capturing the band Talking Heads as they toured their fifth studio album, Speaking in Tongues. This performance was filmed over several nights at the Pantages Theater in Los Angeles in December 1983. Unlike a lot of concert films, director Jonathan Demme doesn't include many shots of the audience. Instead, he brings us on stage and makes us a part of the performance. Stop Making Sense also boasts a unique structure for a concert film, a definite narrative arc. It begins with lead singer David Byrne walking out on stage alone with only a boombox to back him for Psycho Killer. Psycho Killer, As the night progresses, he's gradually joined by his bandmates, drummer Chris France, bassist Tina Weymouth, and Jerry Harrison on keyboards and guitar. They're also joined on stage by supporting musicians Bernie Worrell, Alex Weir, and Steve Scales, plus backup singers Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry, who are worth the price of admission alone. There are also risers, projection screens, and memorably, a floor lamp that becomes Burns' dance partner. There are costume changes and lighting changes which build to an exultant and ecstatic finish with Burns' gawky, geeky, onstage persona at the center of it all. 
A24 has produced a brand new 4K restoration of the film in time for its 40th anniversary. It's in IMAX theaters now and will be expanded to regular theaters this Friday. Felix, let me start with you. What's your experience with this band, this film, and what'd you think of the new version? I forgot how good it is. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I saw the film when it first came out and I had it on VHS. Okay. I'm of that Uh age. I had it on VHS for a long time and would watch it every now and then on a small screen at home. Uh But I really was super impressed with the story arc from the Uh just a stripped down version, which also is like a a diagram of the band's music too. Like it starts with quirky guitar thing, the lyrics, and then it just, everybody just started adding on. Uh And from there, it just blew my mind. The one thing that really just killed me as soon as the whole band hit was how deep those grooves were, man. Mm -hmm. They did a great job. I had forgotten just how good that band was live in this particular version of it. Yeah. Now, Aisha, you hadn't seen this film before, but you knew the band, right? So (laughs) I think I knew that they existed and then they were in the ether. (laughs) I think my earliest memories of them was probably first indirect. It was the Tom Tom Club sample, The Genius of Love, and Mariah Carey's Fantasy. And then, of course, there's Kermit the Frog doing Once in a Lifetime on Muppets Tonight. Once in a lifetime, water flowing underground. Coming to this movie uh, was such an experience for the first time. I wanted to wait to see it in IMAX. This uh-huh. was the perfect opportunity. You know, uh, greatest concert film of all time, they said. A lot of hype. Uh, yeah. Close to perfection, they said. Mm-hmm. Was that hyperbole? No, actually. <laughs> uh, having experienced this now, I got to say, this is an amazing movie. I loved it. And I'm really glad I got to see it for the first time and experience it almost as if I was in the room with them on IMAX. Yeah, I think Felix and I envy you there. Look, I love this movie deeply. This movie sings to my soul. I saw it in 1984 at the TLA Theater on South Street in Philly. And I had discovered Talking Heads a couple years earlier because, you know, in suburban Philly, you listen to classic rock or you were somehow suspect, probably gay. And, you know, they were right in my case, but that's not (laughs) no reason to go with them. Look, the Talking Heads gave me cover because rock stations played them back in the day and yet they were still weird and um, experimental and nerdy and they still spoke to my incredibly pretentious, uh, no one understands me kind of uh, self back then. Mm. And I was thinking about this this weekend. I think this is probably the one film I've seen more often than any other. So oh. it's not just a film I like. It is a pillar of my identity. It is the North Star by which I navigated my adolescence and adulthood. But I got to be honest, <laughs> I was not – Looking forward to why? this. Why? Um, why? And here's why. Here's why. Because I know this thing in my blood, and I came to it thinking, look, I don't think this film has much more it can surrender to me. What nuance could it possibly retain? Mm. And then the lights go down, right? And he walks out with that boombox, and hi, I've got a tape I'd like to play. And immediately, I realized something that I hadn't even allowed myself to consider, which is how great it sounds. I have never heard it like this before. In hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of viewings, the sound is so rich and so deep and so funky. I felt it. I felt it. Did you guys feel it? Oh my God. I felt it. And there were people by like the fourth song, you know, found a job. 
I noticed that the audience, like the, the ones, I was all the way in the very back row, um, but yeah. everyone in the front rows, it was just like a dance party for oh, wow. most of the movie. They were all in the aisles. There were some people who got up from the middle and like went down and danced with them. Wow. It was great. It was like being at a wedding. Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like everyone's just kind of jamming and grooving in that sort of herky jerky cute way yep. like just wild yep. abandon and it was it was very infectious i i loved it felix what was your experience my own experience was with the talking heads was that i knew they were out there mm-hmm. but i wasn't listening to them mm-hmm. i was more into jazz latin music mm-hmm. but then this album came out and robert hilburn from the la times wrote about it in a glowing way the remain in light album oh yeah mm-hmm. and i went out when i bought the album and honestly it changed my life changed the way I listened to music and I understood how genres can expand and converge the way yeah. he brought all of these other musicians the funk musicians Bernie Worrell all of these guys into an already existing pretty killer rhythm section with Tina and Chris It was amazing to hear that record. It's still, I still listen to it in a sense of wonder and awe because it's just so powerful what they did. Mm-hmm. And then just having the film, because I, I'm a geek like you guys. I have a ton of concert films on VHS, DVD, you know, et cetera, <laughs> right? But coming back to today or this weekend, seeing it again, like you said, the sound was amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and seeing it on IMAX, just so big. It really was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, that brings me to the Jonathan Demme of it all, which I want to talk about for a bit, because the question that stuck with me in this latest viewing was, look, what is the Jonathan Demme factor here? Because this is a great band live. They've got choreography. They've got lighting. They've got rear projections. You know, this story we're talking about, it's like this story of a lonely, nerdy, out-of-touch guy who's literally buttoned up in every sense of the term. And then gradually he loosens up, lets other people into his life, and gives in to the power of music. So where is Jonathan Demme in all of this? Because... If you were ungenerous, you could say you could point a camera at this band at the height of their power at this time in this concert and you'd come away with something interesting. But he made something that I think we all agree is kind of indelible. And Jonathan Demme as a filmmaker was not a stylist. He was not – I don't think he'd consider himself an auteur. But he wasn't like you're just German, you know, like cypher. What he did, he served the narrative. Very rarely in his films did he do something really showy. Like his go-to move in Silence of the Lambs was to have a character stare down the barrel of the camera. You know, that was like the showiest thing he ever did. So do you guys have a sense of what he brought to this mix of, of how he served the narrative? So I think part of it, as you mentioned earlier, Glenn, is the fact that there's less focus on the audience than there is on just what's happening on stage. Because oftentimes yeah. – you do have the cuts to the audience to get the reactions. And we don't really get that except for the very end, like the last couple minutes of it. Uh And I think also there's just a lot of really great editing going on here. Lisa Day is the editor. And I think when they choose to focus on David Byrne and when they choose to focus on all the other people on stage and when Uh they bring them all together, like I think that's really, really effective. And just being able to see, especially as everyone's coming on stage, the a little, just the, sneak peek of behind the scenes. Like we see the crew rolling the set onto stage, the drum set. Mm -hmm. Those things, those little details give the DIY effect, even though obviously this is a very intricate piece of performance art, but it does still have this sort of lo-fi quality to it. 
especially yeah. in the beginning. And I think that is the way that this movie is really supporting the vision that the talking heads had for this, which is like, keep it kind of lo-fi, not too showy, not too obvious, and just really immerse yourself in this world. One of the tools that he used to do that was to focus so much on David Byrne because mm-hmm. I, having never seen him live, I don't have that experience. But when you're watching film, you know, you can't take your eyes off the guy, right? Yeah. For a lot of different reasons, the way he moves, his dance stuff, those little things that he choreographed. Yep. Plus, it almost looks like he doesn't blink the way he stares, yeah. like he's singing. Black eyes, lifeless eyes. You know what I mean? Doll's eyes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, sure. He is the center of attention, obviously. Yeah. And there's enough of the periphery stuff going on that you see how the band is working and how they're working with him, how they're working with David Byrne at the front. You know, there's just, I don't know what the technique or style is, but, I, you know, when I compare it to other concert films as well, yeah. you know, and how the different directors pull those off yeah. and try to figure out what the difference is, you know, I think that watching him work with the band, it's like you're on the stage and you're with the band and you're looking for like a smile or a cue or something from another musician. From the musician's standpoint, that's what it felt like. felt like being on a stage with them. Hmm. That's, I think, the magic of the film. Yeah, I I pulled a clip from uh, Once in a Lifetime because I think that illustrates what Jonathan Demme is bringing to the mix here. So we spend the entire song in a medium shot of burn and the camera is fixed. Now that is unusual because for most of this film, we are roaming the stage. Mm-hmm. We are, and we've got, uh, you know, the, the editor, Lisa Day is cutting on the downbeat, but now we get this and you can see why, because, you know, burn is doing his nerdy white guy shtick as if the music is kind of like rocking his body and it's very entertaining. But then as the song is ending and we get to time isn't holding us, time isn't after us. keyboards kind of slide in over top of everything and now we cut to a shot of burn with Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt behind him and the lights gone suddenly moody and they have arched they are leaning backwards yeah. and they have their backs arched and they are slowly in unison rising like Frankenstein from the slab. Yes. And that's a reveal. We we all realize, oh, there's been all this other stuff going on this right. whole time. We've been looking at David Byrne. Right. And the thing about David Byrne is he's the center of attention, but it's not like he lets us in, right? As you say, he, there is no real raw emotion with him. It's like there's intellect and then there's dancing. <laughs> it's like <laughs> there's no emotion in between. Or what there is, I guess there is joy, right? There's ecstatic yeah. joy. But like it, it's very – mediated, it's processed, it's very intellectual. I don't know if I, like, I kind of got a different sense from that. Like, I, in my own notes, I kind of wrote, I already mentioned this sort of wedding vibe I was getting from just the audience I was with. But, like, (laughs) he also reminds me of that guy at every wedding who may or may not have had, like, a few too many drinks and is just in the zone, really feeling the music. And he looks like the happiest guy in the world. And and I think to me, that sense of sort of just like not having a care in the world maybe is what you're seeing as like not emotion. But I I don't know. Mm -hmm. You have the moment with the lamp, of course, and he's tossing it back and forth. And it reminded me a little bit of 
the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz and like mm-hmm. the way that Dorothy is like her, her she's just watching him and her head keeps moving back and forth she, and he's just bouncing around from side to side she's like what's gonna happen and then you have Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry they have this very brief moment where you see as he's moving side to side um, they both look at him like oh look what's he gonna do what's he gonna and they're like <laughs> slightly swaying with him and I just that to me is just that little playfulness and that sort of just like it seems off the cuff and maybe they'd done it in other times before but like I don't know I get from him just a sense of uh, joy and just I don't have a care in a world even if it is kind of sort of buttoned up still you know that's your shtick what do you think Felix break the tie I (laughs) what what is the tie I think that um, I don't know if that was a shtick or if that was his real persona if he was really that kind of quirky Mm -hmm. because he's like he's a character man i mean and if it is a character he never breaks character a few Mm -hmm. times he's smiling and he's laughing but usually when you're with the band you know you turn around and something there's some kind of interaction but he's like okay i've got this thing i'm i'm looking out at the audience and i'm doing my little dances and i'm like not blinking and i'm and i'm singing these songs where I will confess, I still don't know what the F they're about, okay? And it's just, you know what I mean? It's yep, like, that's the they're catchy, and they, you know, you sing along, you do all this, you know? In that moment when he's actually performing them, and he's zeroing in on this persona, it's just part of the whole thing. I just ex- appreciated it for its wholeness. Mm. Yeah. Because there's this loose, funky thing all around him with the percussion and keyboard and the, that killer rhythm guitar, and then there's David Byrne right in the middle of it, just being quirky and rigid and everything and dancing in his own funky way. I just appreciated the whole. So I won't break the tie. I'm just saying, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. I think what happens is he lets us see this funkiness that you're talking about, Felix, get to him. Like he's like a cat who suddenly gets the zoomies and he turns he turns life during wartime into a track and field meet mm-hmm. by just yeah. jogging and jogging and jogging around the stage and jogging in place. And like this is the only thing that's changed between me seeing it then and seeing it as a 55-year-old man. It's like, oh boy, how could he how could he sing? <laughs> a lyric how could he sing a word after doing all that yeah i mean the stamina of Uh that it's so fascinating to me and look i think that david byrne might be one of the greatest rock dancer frontmen ever i don't know wow i I mean i'm putting it out there he's just so immersive and fascinating to watch and i love this movie man i'm excited that i saw it and i'm going down a rabbit hole of talking heads music this is great just pull up a chair by me (laughs) and felix the the other thing i do very quickly is that i put it in the context of what was going on back then Mm -hmm. you know the idea at that time of some of the the white musicians reaching out across the aisle to bring in other influences like he Mm -hmm. did with remain in light like Mm -hmm. bowie did in 83 with now rogers and less dance a sting with Dream of the Blue Turtles and what was 85 with all the jazz musicians. There was this magic moment that had me buying stuff from artists that I never would have bought before because yeah. they were all of a sudden they were speaking my language, right? They're like, oh, well, maybe there is something. Let me hear what this Talking Heads guy is about because I didn't pay attention to him before. I, you know, sort of I knew what the police was, you know, it sounded like a, a reggae ripoff. I wasn't really a big fan but whenever they started doing all this other stuff and adding these musicians, amazing. Mm-hmm. So talking heads, remaining light, speaking in tongues, and stop making sense are of a whole to me. It's part of a, an era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate it on, on that level as well. 
it's kind of the ideal version of like that kind of cultural exchange right. between white right. and non-white musicians and how they they feel as mm-hmm. if there's a respect, a mutual respect and understanding. And I think that's what's happening here. And you can absolutely see that in this film. That's a great thing to end on, I think. So we love this movie. <laughs> we love, despite my old man reservations, we love seeing it at an IMAX theater. You'll love seeing it at a regular theater. You'll just love this movie, I think. So we want to know what you think about Stop Making Sense. You're going to love it. If you don't, just don't tell us. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. And that brings us to the end of our show. Felix Contreras, Aisha Harris, thanks so much for being here. Oh, man, it's always a Thank blast. Thank you. Same as it ever was. Great mixes. Same as it ever was. <laughs> This is not my beautiful podcast. We want to take a moment to thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so much for showing your support of NPR. If you haven't signed up yet, you want to show your support and to listen to the show without a single solitary sponsor break, head over to plus.npr.org slash happy hour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Thomas Liu and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy and Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.